Hey everyone, welcome back to the grand relaunch of the Interneting Podcast. I know it's been a couple months, so I'll quickly explain what happened and what I see the future of this podcast looking like. Essentially, uh, right before the election, I got really stressed out. I was just reading 538 all the time. I wasn't really doing much of anything else, so I kind of dropped off on the podcast. And even afterwards, I just found it hard to get back in. But going into the new year, I've decided that I want to start this up again and put a little more effort into it, make these podcasts really something that's worth listening to. So with that, let me just describe my plans. So number one, Rather than improvising my scripts and kind of freewheeling, I've scripted them out. So I'll be reading off a script. Don't worry, it'll still be interesting. I won't make it boring, but it'll be a little more coherent because I'll have written out everything and edited it in advance. I'm also going to really try hard to stick to the tri-weekly schedule, so once every three weeks. I think that'll give me enough time to edit everything, write out a script, record it, get into podcast form and publish it. Um, so with all that, I hope you guys enjoy the relaunch. I'm really looking forward to putting out some cool content. And with that, let's get started. Quibi, or is it Quibi? Who knows? Now that's probably a name you haven't heard in a few months now, is it? Today's podcast is going to be an in-depth look at the sometimes hilarious downfall of the hottest new streaming app around. It's a story of arrogance, incompetence, and quite literally billions of dollars thrown out the window. It's the story of two aging media moguls who are severely out of touch with how young people actually consume content. And it's the story of how a series of poor decisions and external shocks sunk an intriguing idea in less than six months. You with me? Great. In that case, we are finally back, so let's get internetting. On your mark, get set. We're riding on the internet, cyberspace, set free. Hello, virtual reality. Interactive appetite, searching for a website, a window to the world, got to get online. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set. You're going surfing on the internet. It's August 2018. Donald Trump has recently suffered a series of humiliations after his family separation policy ends up, well, separating families and causing a humanitarian crisis. Movie audiences worldwide are reeling from the end of Avengers Infinity War, where, spoiler alert, the heroes lose. I started my first job and quickly realized how much I missed school. And a man named Jeffrey Katzenberg had an idea. Let me give you some background on Jeffrey here. Born in 1950, so he's 70 now, that's important later, Katzenberg was a wildly successful producer and media titan. He's best known for his career at Disney, lifting the studio out of its dark age when it produced such flops as The Black Cauldron. Under Katzenberg's direction, Disney was revitalized and started churning out hits like The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. Already a star, Katzenberg then moved on to founding DreamWorks, where he oversaw incredible movies such as Shrek. So it's no surprise that venture capitalists were willing to fund pretty much any idea that Katzenberg pitched. And pitch he did! Over the next two years, Katzenberg dazzled investors with New TV, later called Quibi, a new premium streaming service that could bite into the billions of hours of streaming content watched by audiences every day. He had detailed plans for massive amounts of original content, ensuring that customers would be incentivized to take the leap on yet another subscription streaming service. Best of all, 
Katzenberg had an ace in the hole. Think about all the premium services that you might subscribe to. Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, HBO Max. All of those services are designed for your television. You can certainly watch The Crown on your phone, but that's generally inferior than to on your TV. But Katzenberg envisioned an app where the content was designed for the ground up for mobile devices. After all, with millennials and Gen Z spending increasing amount of times on their phone, and check your screen time report if you don't believe me, it made sense to target the audience where they were instead of trying to get them to turn on their TV. And better than that, to appeal to young people's short attention spans, episodes would be short, no more than 10 to 15 minutes. You could conceivably watch an episode on your morning commute or while waiting for a coffee at Starbucks. Investors were intrigued. Over the next one and a half years, Quibi raised an eye-watering $1.75 billion. It's worth pausing for a moment to consider how much money that is. We're so used to seeing numbers like billions in the news that I think it's easy to lose sight of just how vast that amount of money is. If you take out your phone's calculator app and type a one, followed by nine zeros, that might give you a better idea of how much one billion is. To put it another way, let's say you had a princely hourly wage of $100 an hour. That's pretty nice, right? Now, assuming you work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, and somehow dodge all taxes and expenses, it would take you roughly 5,000 years to accumulate $1 billion. Meanwhile, Quibi raised almost $2 billion. Of course, Katzenberg didn't do this alone. Remember, he's a content guy, he produces movies. But what he needed was a partner that actually understood running a technology company. And that's where our second main character comes into play, Meg Whitman. Meg Whitman was born in 1956. Are you sensing a pattern here? She's most well-known for her leadership of eBay from 1998 to 2008. In those 10 years, she turned a small auction swapping site into a global e-commerce giant. She also led Helwet Packard for several years with more mixed results, but she was still considered to be a major force in the tech and computing industry. Whitman agreed to become the CEO of Quibi, which impressed investors who admired her strong record in technology. Uh, we'll get into it later, but the relationship between Katzenberg and Whitman would ultimately be one of the sticking points that would herald the downfall of Quibi. Whitman was focused on technology performance. According to reporting from the Wall Street Journal, in meetings, she would focus on things like app functionality. And meanwhile, Katzenberg seemed to be mainly focused on show content. While a division of labor certainly could have been useful for Quibi, Katzenberg was also a micromanager and would often dictate to Whitman and treat her like an underling at a movie studio, despite her being the nominal leader of Quibi. Katzenberg's inability to let Whitman flourish on her own would prove to be costly. Armed with their mountains of cash, Quibi embarked on a titanic marketing campaign targeting a launch of April 2020. At the beginning of the year, networks were flooded with Quibi ads, most notably at the Super Bowl and the Oscars. The ad campaign was, how shall I put this, weird. All the spots focused on people in some kind of dangerous situation, but instead of doing anything, they elect to watch a Quibi's worth of video on their phone. The idea was that audiences would start to associate the word Quibi with a short amount of time. 
if Quibi was lucky, perhaps people would even start using the brand name in that fashion in casual conversations, similar to how we Google something or get a Kleenex. I'll go ahead and play one of the ads for you now. Imagine an astronaut floating in space, watching a video on her phone. Jackson, get back in here. You're dangerously low on air. Relapse, Commander. Got at least a Quibi left. Like tag or something? The text during the music says, Episodes in 10 minutes or less. Quibi. Quick bites, big stories. A few things about this ad. 1. This campaign launched months before Quibi was actually on the market. In this ad, or any of the others, it is never actually explained what Quibi is supposed to be, which is an app that you download with streaming content. If you're trying to raise awareness for an upcoming product, it's probably a good idea to let your audience know what the heck you're trying to sell to them. Many people who watched the ad likely couldn't tell you what it was for. 2. The word, Quibi. You may have already guessed it, but it's supposed to be short for Quick Bites to emphasize the short-form nature of the content. There are a lot of ways to describe this incredible choice of branding, but the technical term is stupid as hell. Even worse, trying to force the word Quibi as a real word came off as completely inauthentic. 3. Quibi blew a ton of money on these ads. The Super Bowl ad alone cost $5.6 million. Given that these ads really failed in their primary purpose of informing the public that money probably could have been used elsewhere, probably to produce better content. And speaking of content, now is a good time to mention Quibi's most glaring flaw, which is to say, the shows sucked. They sucked hard. And the weird thing was, it really wasn't for a lack of trying. They recruited tons of celebrities to star in original shows. Katzenberg knew that consumers needed a reason to subscribe to Quibi. After all, it's usually some sort of killer show that gets people hooked on a service, and then they remain subscribed to it. Consider the example of Disney+, Plus, which launched a few months prior in 2019. Although Disney obviously has a massive back catalog, the star of the service was The Mandalorian, which attracted millions of subscribers within the first month, including me. Katzenberg was hoping a similar mega-hit would juice Quibi's initial subscriber numbers. Unfortunately, this ran into foundational problems with Quibi itself. Uh, typically, show writers tend to construct episodes that are between 30 minutes to an hour. This allows for plot exposition, as well as moments that can develop characters and the relationships between them. Now imagine trying to do all that in a 10-minute episode. Just think about, say, a Game of Thrones episode condensed into that short of a time frame. Heck, even an episode of The Office would be hard-pressed to fit into 10 minutes. Worse still, since Quibi worked on mobile devices, and only mobile devices, directors were forced to consider cinematography that worked on a small screen. I'm no TV expert, but I can only imagine how difficult it was for directors used to a full TV or theater screen to try and shoot scenes for a 5-inch iPhone. Even more challenging was Quibi's quote-unquote revolutionary turnstile technology. Basically, the technology allowed you to seamlessly flip your phone while watching a show and get a different perspective. The screen would also instantly flip without lag. 
This actually led to some cool ideas. For example, in one show, while watching in landscape mode, you could see the character using his phone. If you flipped your screen to portrait mode, you could see what he was looking at on his phone screen. This idea allowed creative directors to do some neat visual tricks. Unfortunately, this made things harder to film and was generally dismissed by critics as a pretty gimmicky feature. Worse, another company, Echo, sued Quibi for patent infringement, claiming that Quibi had stolen the turnstile technology from them. This lawsuit did nothing to quell the rising fears of investors. The net result of all of this was that writers would send their bad ideas to Quibi. It became something of a running joke that if your script got rejected by Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon, Quibi would always be there to buy it. This resulted in such oddities such as Chrissy's Court, where Chrissy Teigen plays judge at a small claims court, or Most Dangerous Game, where rich people pay money to hunt Liam Hemsworth like an animal. The shows on Quibi ranged anywhere from mediocre to laughably bad. More importantly, Katzenberg and Whitman failed to find their mega-hit that would become the face of the service. The big day was set for April 6th. Ads continued to play through February into the beginning of March, as Quibi geared up for a massive influx of subscribers. Of course, you probably know what else happened in March of 2020. As the coronavirus devastated the American economy and forced the nation into lockdown, anxious employees wondered if they could still hit their launch day. Whitman and Katzenberg ultimately decided to go ahead with the launch, given that they had already sunk so much money into marketing, salaries, technology development, and the like. All working from home, Whitman, Katzenberg, and the rest of Quibi's employees watched as Quibi went live in April. Knowing that other streaming services such as Disney Plus and Netflix had seen massive boosts in viewership during the first weeks of the pandemic, Katzenberg hoped for a similar surge for Quibi. Alas, it was not to be. Quibi offered a 90-day free trial, at the conclusion of which consumers could pay $4.99 a month for Quibi with ads, or $7.99 for an ad-free experience. Despite the free trial, only 1.9 million people downloaded Quibi in its first week. By comparison, Disney Plus was downloaded 12.5 million times within the first week. Within days, Quibi had fallen out of the top 50 downloaded apps on the App Store. Characteristically, Katzenberg deflected responsibility, blaming the pandemic for Quibi's woes. In a New York Times interview, Katzenberg said, I attribute everything that has gone wrong to the coronavirus. Everything. But we own it. Of course, Katzenberg did not own the myriad of other poor decisions that had led to Quibi's anemic launch. Meanwhile, tension was mounting between Whitman and Katzenberg. Before the launch, Katzenberg's inability to let Whitman make decisions prompted her to send him a list of her complaints. Katzenberg's micromanaging was legendary. He reportedly picked the outfit for the anchorman on Quibi's news program. While Katzenberg backed down, frictions continued to rise. As the two watched Quibi stumble out of the starting gate, Whitman was privately annoyed at how Katzenberg blamed all their problems on the pandemic. Morale was wavering among the other employees. The head of brand marketing resigned in late April, declining to comment to reporters. A stairwell within the office became infamous for being the place where employees would go to cry. According to reporting from the Wall Street Journal, at an all-hands meeting in May, Katzenberg expressed confidence that life would soon be back to normal, 
and people would be watching Quibi in line for the dry cleaners. Again, May of 2020. Many employees viewed this statement as out of touch. Katzenberg then went on to mention that his other company had almost invested in TikTok, uh, but had not. A statement employees found strange given that people don't generally advertise themselves missing out on great investments. Meanwhile, as the end of the 90-day free trial approached, Quibi executives realized with growing horror that people were not going to subscribe to the paid options. Quibi's already small user base was going to shrink dramatically unless something drastic was done. It's worth pausing here for a bit to analyze some of Quibi's mistakes, because I think it really says a lot about how old and out of touch Whitman and Katzenberg really were. We already talked about the lackluster content, but Quibi made some other really basic mistakes on a technical level that even today I find shocking from any major media company. Firstly, Quibi, anxious to become the destination for people watching on their mobile devices, decided not to allow any options for watching them from your TV or your computer. This meant no Roku, no Chromecast, no AirPlay, nothing. You could either watch on your phone or you could go do something else. You can sort of see Quibi's reasoning. Their turnstile technology wouldn't work on a TV. After all, you can't really rotate your TV 90 degrees on a whim. Additionally, by leaning into the mobile-first, mobile-only philosophy, Quibi hoped that they wouldn't be seen as direct competitors of Netflix and Hulu. Indeed, Katzenberg openly told reporters that he felt that Quibi wasn't necessarily in the same market space as the other major streaming apps. This is all well and good, but of course, Quibi didn't count on the entire nation being stuck in their homes right as they launched. Nobody was whipping out their phones to watch a Quibi show while on the subway. With your TV one room over, why watch shows on your phone? And consumers were intensely frustrated to find that they couldn't cast Quibi up onto their big screens. But for months, Quibi dawdled, and it wasn't until the summer that they added basic TV mirroring features, by which point most people had given up on the service. Secondly, Quibi prohibited users from screenshotting or recording any of the shows. At first glance, this might seem like normal business practice. After all, you wouldn't want someone recording the entire show and then sending it to a non-subscriber. Even other apps such as Disney Plus and HBO Max don't allow screenshots on your phone. So what's the issue? Well, this speaks to a larger disconnect between Quibi's leadership and how young people consume content. Think about how you watch a hot new show. You probably watch the show, but you also might go on Twitter and talk about it and share memes or GIFs from it with your friends. Watching a show in the modern era is inherently collaborative, and indeed, many people start watching shows just because all their friends on social media are posting about it. Heck, I started Game of Thrones just because all my friends were talking about it. Quibi chopped off this organic form of growth at the knees by stopping screenshots and gif making. After all, on Disney Plus and HBO Max, you can just go on your computer and screen grab things to your heart's content. You can't do that on Quibi. You want to make a meme from a funny moment on a Quibi show? Uh, sorry, kid, but you're going to have to use some complex third-party software or crazy workaround to do that. This failure to understand how virality works is one of the most baffling mistakes of the whole enterprise, and can really only be explained by Quibi's top executives simply being too out of touch with the youths. 
So there's two crippling technical mistakes, the no TVs and no screenshotting, but there's also a broader market positioning mistake that really doomed Quibi from the start. Remember, I mentioned that Katzenberg thought that Quibi wasn't really a direct competitor with Netflix or Hulu. Well, that might have been true if everyone hadn't been forced inside and had to choose between watching a crappy Quibi show on their phone or a good Netflix show on their TV, but even assuming that there had been no pandemic, I still think Quibi would have failed, because while Katzenberg was right that it wasn't necessarily competing with Netflix, he was wrong that Quibi was entering a market all to itself. You see, just around the same time as Quibi launched, another short-form video mobile app was gaining massive popularity. You've probably guessed it, but TikTok, more than any streaming app, was Quibi's primary competition. Think about TikTok's structure. You're scrolling through a series of short videos, except the content is deliberately targeted at you, via TikTok's insanely powerful For You page algorithm. Also, it's free. Meanwhile, on Quibi, you get to pay $4.99 to watch bad content, not optimized for you, with ads. If you're sitting on the toilet for 10 minutes, which are you going to open? It's worth noting that TikTok grew exponentially over the same time frame that Quibi launched. So it's not as if short-form video on mobile devices was an inherently bad idea during the pandemic. Rather, TikTok succeeded at doing what Quibi failed to do. It's not known exactly how many subscribers Quibi lost at the end of the free trial, but estimates from industry analysts guess that about 90% of users decided not to pay up. As Quibi bled subscribers each day, Whitman and Katzenberg cast about desperately for a way to save their business. By July, they finally rolled out an update that allowed you to take a screenshot, but even this small act of intelligence was botched. Instead of letting you just click the button on your phone to take a screenshot, Quibi built an in-app tool that you had to open and slide your finger over to take the screenshot. Supposedly, this was due to DRM restrictions that are caused by copyright law, but either way, it was frustrating and complex for consumers. They also finally allowed users to cast their TVs, although this of course then negated the impact of their turnstile filming. Perhaps most importantly, in Australia, they experimented with a completely free service supported by ads. Apparently, the damage was already done, as the Australian market didn't take, and Quibi never even tried the freemium model in the United States. In my opinion, Quibi should have started with this free model from the get-go. Forcing customers to pay $4.99 and still watch ads was supremely stupid. I have no doubt the Quibi executives considered this, but figured it wouldn't be profitable, but it's not like the course of action they chose was profitable either, so who knows. By the fall, it was clear to everyone, except maybe Katzenberg, that Quibi was going to die a slow and painful death. The company started discreetly looking to be acquired, hoping another media company would want to grab its library, technology, and small base of subscribers. Nobody bit. Finally, on October 21st, the Wall Street Journal broke the news. Quibi was shutting down. Katzenberg and Whitman had decided to return Quibi's remaining money back to the investors, rather than continue blowing it trying to keep the service alive. The Wall Street Journal report also came as news to many of Quibi's employees. Finding out that you're going to lose your job via a newspaper report is never fun. The next day, Katzenberg assembled an all-hands meeting to confirm the news that everyone was fired. Bizarrely, he then read a Theodore Roosevelt quote, 
and then told his staff to listen to Get Back Up Again from the movie Trolls. Really, I'm not making this up. It's easy to laugh at Katzenberg and Whitman, but I do think it's important to note that they were, and still are, fabulously wealthy, despite Quibi's abject failure. The real victims here were the junior writers and employees who were unceremoniously laid off in the middle of a pandemic. In at least a little bit of good news, the employees were paid a severance on the way out. In a final coda to all of this, Roku ended up buying out Quibi's library for a bargain price. So if you want to watch a Quibi show for some reason, Roku has you covered. The legacy of Quibi will be one of unmitigated failure and corporate incompetence. At every turn, Quibi's executives made the wrong decision. Even without releasing in a global pandemic, Quibi would have still likely been a failure, and COVID merely hastened the end of a bad product. For their parts, Whitman and Katzenberg are doing fine. Whitman is currently on the board of both Dropbox and Procter & Gamble. Katzenberg continues to produce various television projects. You can't download Quibi on your phone now. I know, because I tried. It has been effectively erased from the internet, taking over a billion dollars along with it. It's a sad end for an idea that might have had potential had it not been executed in the worst possible fashion. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Internetic. If you did, consider smacking that subscribe button. I have so many other ideas, including the death of Parlor, for the next episode. It is a crazy world out there, so stay safe, and I will see you next time.